Here on Gadget Lab, we dive deep into the tech universe, tackling questions like, is giving companies access to your genetic material a good idea? And are the latest phone releases really that different than the last ones? We want to help you make informed decisions about what is worth your attention. And here's something that is undeniably worth your time, a digital subscription to Wired. Lucky for you, we are giving Gadget Lab listeners an exclusive discount, 20% off an annual subscription to Wired. Just visit Wired.com and use the promo code GL20 to get 20% off a digital subscription. Use GL20 to get exclusive access to stories on the latest innovations like AI, deepfakes, and VR, as well as today's most talked about people in technology. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Gadget Lab. I'm Michael Calori, a senior editor here at Wired. This week, we've got a special show for you. This is our 500th episode of Gadget Lab, and that is an astonishingly huge number. It's hard even for me to believe, and I've been here for most of these. Now, since this is such a huge milestone, we want to pay proper tribute to it. So we're going to ditch the usual format this week and do something special instead. We're going to invite on some of the past co-hosts of this show. We'll check in with them and see how they're doing. We're going to ask them to talk about their memories of being on Gadget Lab, their memories of working at Wired... It'll be a fun stroll down memory lane. It'll also be a rare look behind the scenes here, so you can get a sense of how the show is made and how it's evolved. So to set the scene a little bit, I want to take you all the way back to the beginning. Most people don't know this, but Gadget Lab wasn't always a weekly audio podcast. It actually started life as a video show sometime in the late 2000s. There was a rotating cast of hosts, usually somebody from the Wired Gear team, and we would sit in front of the camera and talk about whatever the new gadget was that week. After a couple of years, there was a change in management at Wired, and that video series was cancelled along with a few other video series. It was all very sad. And for a while, Wired didn't put out any videos or any podcasts for over a year. The feeds just went dark. But we still had all of these subscribers, people who were loyal to Wired and were expecting us to deliver something eventually. So in early 2013, I started talking to my coworker Matt Honan about possibly doing an audio podcast. Something we could just start publishing, totally on the down low, completely under our boss's radar, just so we could give the loyal Wired audience something to listen to. Also, podcasts were exploding at the time in tech journalism, and we really felt like Wired needed to have one. So let's pick it up there with my first co-host on Gadget Lab and our first guest on today's episode. Here's me and Lauren Good talking to Matt Honan. Matt Honan, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. It's been a while. So you are uh, an executive editor at BuzzFeed News. Um, and a long time ago, right before that job, you worked at Wired. Uh, what were That's your right. years at Wired? Do you remember? Yeah, I started there in 2003 uh, as a fact checker. Joanna Perlstein hired me. 
uh, and I worked there in a couple different capacities until I spent a year at Gizmodo sometime around 2011 and then came back as a fancy staff writer instead of just a, uh, you know, a contractor. <laughs> uh, so you and I sort of rebooted the show and did it as like an audio podcast. I, I would like you to, to take me back to your best recollection of the discussions that we had around why we should start a podcast and how it happened and all that. I mean, I like to think of us as creating it, even though it had existed previously. Can we just say that? Yes, because like, you know, to be fair, it was completely different in its previous incarnation. It also died. Um, but so, I mean, choose your own definition of creation. But I, I, I like to say that I'm the, the founder of the Gadget Lab podcast. Um, uh, so my recollection of it is basically that we were... It was that we thought it would be fun and interesting, you know, um, and that we were were looking around and listening to lots of other discussions out there and thought that there was a space and a reason to do this. And so next thing you knew, we were in a densely carpeted room with, uh, I, I, I recall it being very dark um, and there being lots of foam. And I don't think it was at Apple headquarters, but it may have well have been the, uh, the sound quality was so good. And um, <laughs> yeah, and we, and we started doing it every week. Um, and it was, it was very fun. And actually one of the things that I really missed about, uh, or miss, still miss about Wired was, was getting to sit down with you once a week and uh, talk about what's going on. Share air. What were podcasts like at the time? And like, how were people listening to them? You, you basically, what we would do was we would capture vibrations in a clay tablet <laughs> and then mail the tablets to people's homes <laughs> where if you put it on your roof and let the wind blow through it, you could hear our voices. It's incredible. That's completely accurate. It's really yeah. incredible technology. Well, I remember like a lot of the shows were like two dudes talking about the week in tech. And I really think we need more of those. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we were like, we could do that. We're two dudes. Right. We, we, we have opinions. We have opinions about technology. And, you know, I, I, I remember it just that that was basically the impetus. It was like, you know, we should be doing this. We're yeah. wired. We don't have one of these going on. Everybody else has one of these going on. We should just start there. Yeah, that's that's the basically the way I remember it too. And I remember it was very little prep. We would typically have a list of stories, and not and and then we'd come in with the story. We're gonna let's talk about this, 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 and this, and then we would just talk about it. But we we didn't really plan it out. I do remember it being shockingly easy to get that launched. I feel like, um, you know, it's probably I, I assume it's much harder to launch a podcast now. So I think at the time, all you had to do uh, to publish a podcast was to like upload it to the place where you had told Apple podcasts live on your server. And then it would generate a new RSS file, which then Apple would see and then distribute it through iTunes. And like, that was literally it. There was no Spotify dance. There was nothing else. It was just like you, you used Apple's publishing service to update an RSS feed. And then, everyone would just see that there was a new episode in their client. But I think what Matt was saying, and Matt, feel free to interject, is that it's easier technically to launch a podcast now. The barriers are lower, but it's harder to get attention for launching a podcast now, I think. I think, yeah. And also, like, I assume that, like, if you launched a podcast now, there would be a, like, a PR plan around it. And a, mm -hmm. you know, there, there might be paid placement for ads somewhere for it. There'd be all kinds of, you know... 
all kinds of things that are that 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 go with serious media ventures, which podcasts have become. Yeah. So Matt, you wrote a lot of really impactful pieces during your time at Wired, but during that time that you briefly went to Gizmodo before coming back to Wired, you wrote a piece about the fever dream of a guilt-ridden gadget reporter. And I just remember this as the story that like everyone was jealous of, like everyone wished they had written because you so nailed it. Like you so captured the mood of what it was like covering CES at that particular time. Um, when you look back at that piece now, how do you feel about it? Man, I'm, I'm so glad I did it. I thought it was, you know, I mean, honestly, I was just trying to capture the way I felt that day and like the way I was feeling. And like I had, I had a terrible hangover and everything was really monotonous. And you, as you all know, had to, you know, trudge across, you know, several miles of convention center floor. And it just seemed there were so many other people doing the exact same thing. It seemed pretty pointless. And I, I also, uh, I, I was talking about this last week with another reporter here in San Francisco. I do feel like sometimes I owe the world a debt, uh, given my relentless promotion of of rare earth metals and 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 other you know things that are in these phones. And um, you know, I, I think I was I was also struggling a little bit with like feeling guilty in my role about what I was sort of doing there. I think you we. We all feel that to an extent, you know, there comes a time when you're like reviewing the 18th Android phone in four months and you're like, this has to stop. Yeah. Right. Because the, because there are such superficial upgrade cycles at this point too. We're just being lulled into these, these upgrades and new purchases without really thinking about their usefulness or their longevity. Um, because that's what the companies who make them want us to think. They want us to think we have to constantly upgrade. What do you think it is about that particular CES, Matt, where it really, or like CES in general, right? All this external stimuli and like stuff happening that like made that piece just kind of pour out of you. Well, I think I should say before I wrote that, I had pitched Maybe I even wrote, I don't think I wrote it though, a, a story to uh, a Wired editor named Chris Baker about the uh, pointlessness of CES and that, it, that you know, that the most interesting stuff was happening outside of CES. And I, I, just really, I already felt that way. Like I felt like, okay, you know, if there's something really cool, it's not going to get released here. It's going to be, you know, Apple doing their thing or, or Microsoft doing their thing or, you know, Google, it might be like the like the 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 story that I, I remember pitching Chris Baker on was about the flip cam. Do you guys remember the flip cam? Oh like, yeah, oh, yeah. Sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, which was I, I may maybe getting my history wrong here now, but I, but wasn't launched at CES, and I just felt like a lot of what you're here for is the newest you know OLED TV, which is you know not something super interesting, and you're just you're just kind of you know being a, a transcription device for uh for you know whoever's oled line that year oh this year it's the samsung's got all the great oleds you know um and i just you know i don't know i just wanted to say something different i wanted to say something like real i guess and i felt like that was sort of real mm-hmm. um what do you think is the biggest most important or most notable change in technology journalism that you've seen over the past several years I mean, I think the best thing is that people aren't taking uh, folks at their word anymore. I think a lot of that was caused by Theranos, you know, mm. um, and like these a lot of the sort of preposterous claims that used to just go unchecked get checked. Now, I do think at times that it can go overboard and there's almost a knee jerk 
tendency to be uh, overly skeptical or overly critical about tech. Like I, I, I can't imagine what the last year would have been like um, if we didn't, you know, if we didn't have the internet, you know, I mean, or, 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 or even, you know, all kinds of like broadband video. Um, but it's, it's been interesting to see how people have really gone from a kind of a hero worship to a reflexively critical stance, um, which has been a big change. And, and I don't even necessarily think that's so much of a media change. Like when you look at sort of attitudes or seemingly attitudes among uh, people who have grown up with smartphones and the internet and, and a lot of these other things, they tend to approach them more critically, just, you know, as they're not as wowed by them, which makes sense, just the same way that I'm not like wowed by a TV um, so I guess that makes sense. And it does seem like a cultural shift. Yeah. I mean, there, there was a period of time, you know, when, when we were kids where a computer was something that absolutely wowed us, like everything about the early internet was a wow moment. You know, the first, the first time you logged on with a modem, the first time you got an email in your inbox from somebody you didn't know, you know, now that's like the most unwelcome thing in the world. But at the time it was like, wow, it took, you know, half a lifetime to wear off. I mean, I remember when I was in college, uh, I spent hours, like hours and hours and hours and hours, probably on like a Saturday or something, getting my first dial-up connection working and just being amazed that I could do that at my house versus a, you know, a computer lab somewhere. And like thinking it was just like this life-changing, you know, thing that I could now, 14.4 modem, you know, handshake got me, you know a web page in 20 minutes or whatever. Uh, and, you know, I'm assuming, I, I think I carried a lot of that through my life. I still do today, but it, it, it does seem like it's, it's a shift. I mean, my God, I can't imagine being confronted with a smartphone as a teenager. I probably would have done terrible things with it. I think what's been interesting is that in a way tech is no longer quite as verticalized from a coverage perspective as it was even just a decade ago. I mean, and, and I think probably at some of the legacy publications, you know, some of the very, very established newspapers or just, it's, you know, institutional magazines, it's still like a tech vertical, right? Or there's like yeah. the tech sector, or if you're an investor and you're reading the Wall Street Journal, you're looking at tech stocks. But the way I think about tech now is that it's just infused in everything. It's in healthcare, yeah. it's in the transportation industry, it's um, affecting and deepening uh, social inequalities, it's it's just now it's just completely infused in our lives. Yeah, absolutely. It's 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 so ubiquitous, and and not just tech, but like the like the internet is so ubiquitous. You know, like everything. Like I can't even. I, I have I have no idea how many internet connected devices are in my my house, but there there must be several dozen. You know, some that I may not even you know think about or or, or, or know. And you know, when you think about all the different things that on a daily basis are are just like delivered to you via the internet not i don't mean like i don't mean like groceries or, or or uber eats or whatever but just you know the the weather um you know it's 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 bizarre speaking of tech being everywhere one of the other uh, really excellent pieces you wrote for wired was about slack you were very early to slack and you did a profile of Stuart butterfield at the time you were writing about it i mean you obviously were writing about it because you knew that there was something about it that was going to catch on, that was catching on. But did you ever have any idea that it would affect our, our work environments this much? I did not. I did not have any notion that it was going to change the way that we work as much as it did. 
And honestly, looking back on my assumption that it was like a better version of email is probably pretty naive. You know, I think a lot of the way that I was thinking of it was like, well, I've used HipCamp and this is much better than that. HipChat. HipChat, sorry, yes. <laughs> HipChat hip hip is better, by I the mi- way. I mixed up my HipChat hip and, uh, and my Campfire. And I was going to say, I've used Campfire and I like it a lot better than that. Um, and I, I, But I didn't really see how it would break down the walls that we have between our personal and our work lives quite as much as it did. And I certainly had no, like, you know, this is maybe me coming from like a, you know, white male uh, perspective, but I certainly had no idea that it would be used in like as many like sort of nefarious harassing ways as it's been used. Like I, I just thought, I thought it was like a really cool communications platform being built by interesting people who had, you know, a track record of doing interesting stuff. And I did think it was going to be big and everywhere, but I, I didn't think it was going to have a lot of the, like, I just didn't consider a lot of the, like, other effects. So anytime we hear the, Mike, do you want to do the sound effect really quickly? Anytime we hear the, we should blame Matt Honan. <laughs> That's not even remotely true. <laughs> <laughs> that was a really fun story to write. And uh, Mark Robinson, who was my editor on that piece, like, just did a remarkable edit on that, like, like turned it into something... Uh, something special that it wasn't when I filed it. It holds up. Well, Matt, thanks for, uh, thanks for joining us on this little stroll down the digital memory lane. Thank you for using the internet to connect your face with ours. I really enjoyed it. Thanks so much for having me. Um, I hope you'll have me back sometime when it's not an anniversary show, just cause I'm, I'm a fun guy whose company you enjoy. We will. Mike loves fun guy. I do. It's pronounced fun guy. He loves those too. Oh, I know. All right, we're going to take a break, and then we'll be right back. This podcast is supported by Tools and Weapons, the podcast hosted by Microsoft Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. Each episode features insight you won't find anywhere else from the center of the conversation surrounding emerging technologies like AI. Right now on the podcast, you can hear a special episode where Brad Smith lays out Microsoft's vision for a vibrant marketplace driving the new AI economy. To hear more, follow or subscribe to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody. It's Neil. I've got some huge news. Decoder is moving to Mondays and Thursdays. We're adding a second episode of the show. On Mondays, we'll have our classic interviews with CEOs and other troublemakers. I think we're going to have to start having conversations about how do we pay those jobs that can't be done by AI. And on Thursdays, we'll be explaining big topics in the news with Verge reporters, experts, and other friends of the show. There's a new generation of people on the internet. Google search has always sucked for them. So, you know, there's no reason for them to be loyal. They can just go to TikTok. This is going to be really fun. I'm very excited about all this. So go subscribe wherever you get your podcasts now. After Matt left to go to work at BuzzFeed News, I hosted this show solo for a while, but pretty soon we had a couple of new, regular co-hosts. We're going to hear from one of them right now. You might know her if you've been listening to the recent episodes because she was our guest just last week, Wired senior writer Ariel Pardes. So here's me and Lauren Good talking to Ariel. So 
so Ariel, uh, you are currently a senior writer, uh, writing mostly for our culture desk. Uh, before that, you were a senior associate editor on the gear desk with us. It's true. It's true. <laughs> and you were a uh, you were a regular fixture on this here show, the Gadget Lab show. Do you have good memories of that time? I do, but I still can't figure out why you invited me on in the first place to be totally frank (laughs) like on for today or in general no no in general I felt for many episodes uh certainly the majority of episodes that I was a co-host that uh, I had no business being in the room with uh such smart engaged knowledgeable gadget freaks uh because (laughs) and this is this is a big secret I I don't know if our listeners are prepared for this kind of a bombshell, but I don't actually like gadgets. <laughs> well, the thing we probably don't want to tell our listeners, so everyone just plug your ears really quickly, is that we we don't really either, Mike and I. <laughs> so it's just an occupational hazard that we have to use a bunch of them, but you should hear Mike and I talk when the microphones are off. <laughs> The secrets are all coming out. That's right. So what has been your favorite story to work on in all of your time at Wired? Oh, gosh. What a what a difficult question. Um, I'll answer with, with uh, two very different stories. Um, I think uh, one of the stories that I feel most proud of is actually the first story I wrote for Wired. Um, I think it was the first, which was about how... Um, all of a sudden there were a bunch of startups trying to reinvent the breast pump, this gadget that many women rely on every year in America, um, to express milk after, after pregnancy. And this is like a piece of technology that hadn't meaningfully been updated since, I don't know, like the industrial revolution. Um, and so I, um, I, I pitched this, uh, to Mike and Mike very generously, um, let me let me write about it. Um, and I, I loved that story um, along with many of the stories I wrote when I was on the gear desk because they were about like ways that gadgets really shape like how we live our lives and what we're able to do and like how comfortable and free and um, human we feel when we move through the world. And this was like an area that was like getting real innovation for the first time ever. So I loved working on that story. I love talking to women about um, like all the weird mechanisms they were using to try to like make a better breast pump. So I love that story. Um, my favorite assignment for Wired would probably have to be interviewing Chris Evans in his home <laughs> oh. for reasons that I don't feel I need to elaborate on. <laughs> okay, so my final question for you, which we'll get back to the other ones, was going to be, has Chris Evans solved his toilet paper problem? Because this is what America really needs to know. <laughs> you know, uh, contrary to popular belief, I don't I don't have him on speed dial. We don't like talk quite as often as, as one might imagine. So um, I don't know. But uh, I, I, I do wonder sometimes because toilet paper became such a hot issue in the pandemic. You know, it was hard to come by. And, and I, do, I do worry about him. Well, I do worry about what him. What was it like going to his house? Uh, I was very, very nervous, um, but I was also reminding myself that I'm a professional and that's your job. Like one's job is to, um, talk to people and 
listen to them. I mean, I'm, I'm sure like Lauren, you've interviewed some of the most high profile people in technology and it's kind of the same thing, right? Like just because someone is extremely powerful or extremely wealthy or has made decisions that have shaped like millions of people's lives, um, they're still just a person. So one has to remind oneself of that. Um, but I was, yeah, I was super, super nervous. And, um, and also his skin is just so nice. I like found myself getting really distracted by that. (laughs) I remember. So there was, I have to say, there was like a period of time when I think either five or six covers in a row at Wired were written by women. And it was just, it was really cool. Um, And uh, I remember we like laid them all out, you know, on a desk in the office and took a photo. And we were like, this is awesome. And the month before I had written the profile of Simone Yetch and that had ended up on the cover. And, um, I was like, we're keeping the streak going. Like, this is so exciting. And I was really, you know, excited about my cover. And Simone was a lovely person to profile. And then I heard Ariel was doing the next month's cover. And I was like, what's your story on? And she was like, Chris Evans. I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> like, I was like, <laughs> I was like yeah, you, went to, you went to his house? Was a, was and then, you know, she told me the toilet paper story. And everyone's got to go read the profile. It's great. And um, oh, also, he's trying to save democracy. But like, aside from that, like... <laughs> Um, yeah, that was, that was, it was fun to experience it through you, Ariel. Yeah. Have you, have you, speaking of like catching up with people we've profiled, have you caught up with Simone lately? I have actually. Yeah. I saw her a couple times post profile, like before the pandemic. Then we went for a hike during the pandemic and uh, she has since moved to LA. So I haven't seen her now, I guess since the mm-hmm. summer, but she's great. She adopted a three-legged dog and she's starting, <laughs> she's starting some new projects that I sometimes hear about. And yeah. Um, so one of the things that you cover frequently is kind of the intersection of products and people, I like to say. So you write about tech, but you also write about the people who make the tech. And especially during the pandemic, you've written about topics like remote work and the persistent inequalities in Silicon Valley. And I'm curious what has surprised you most about Silicon Valley and its culture during this whole time. Mm. I have become pretty obsessed with uh, what I would describe as like the atomization of Silicon Valley. I, I'm, I'm very, very interested in covering Silicon Valley as a place um, and as a culture that is tied to a place. But I think in the last year, many people have seen that place means something different than it used to, or, or it can, um, in a time when everyone is at home and living inside of their computers. And so um, something that I found really surprising is like just how much the ethos of Silicon Valley and the, the culture and the habits and the practices have, have started to spill out of that region and into other places, um, which is very interesting for me because as someone who's interested in like, you know, what is what does it mean to be part of the tech world or the industry? Um, well, like suddenly that includes a much broader swath of the world than it did before. So I found that really surprising. Um, hmm, what has been surprising in the last year? I mean, everything has been surprising in the last year, right? Like <laughs> I couldn't have called any of this. I couldn't have expected any of this. Um, I wrote a story uh, early in the pandemic about what startups and um, larger tech companies were doing about all of their perks now that people were working from home. And uh, I was really heartened to see that a lot of companies had 
you know, given up the office chef because there is no office, um, but they'd found ways to give back to their employees in ways that are really meaningful, like helping out with childcare credits or, um, you know, providing someone who, uh, you know, can, can come clean your house once a month, um, which, you know, are still sort of these fancy rich people benefits. But um, it seems like maybe we're getting away from the world where Silicon Valley is all ping pong tables and, um, you know, beer on tap and is more about treating people well in in their realities, which include, you know, less glamorous parts of life. Uh, you know, you've also written a fair amount about uh, the time well spent movement. Uh, this was one of the big sort of reactions in Silicon Valley among the big tech companies to the tech backlash. Like people felt as though technology was taking over our lives in ways that made everybody uh, uncomfortable and feeling less than human. Uh, so a lot of these a lot of these companies and the people in the research institutions in Silicon Valley started this movement where we could keep our devices from taking over so much of our attention and sort of win back a little bit of time and mental space for ourselves. It's been about two years, two and a half years since that all started. And I'm just curious if you have uh, any opinions about whether or not it's actually working or helping. <sighs> yeah, this is this is an interesting question. Um, I've actually been meaning to look up what the, the time well spent leaders, thought leaders <laughs> are thinking these days, um, because it seems to me like um, there there was this real groundswell of support for the idea that, um, you know, we're spending too much of our time and attention on our screens and not enough time and attention on people we love or, um, you know, reading books in print <laughs> or, um, you know, whatever, whatever it is that makes a fulfilling life. Um, I, I think that a lot of people were on board with that idea. And then this curveball came, which is the, the pandemic where, you know, now the only way you can, you know, be with a person you love is, is on a screen. Um, for the last year, that's been the case for, for many people. And so, um, I don't know where, where this leaves us. Like, I, I think it'll be really interesting to see, in our post-pandemic, post-vaccination world, like where people start to redraw the boundaries around their personal technology, like whether that's um, a little further out than it was before, like maybe you actually have a more positive relationship with the time that you're spending on on Zoom or on FaceTime or even on Instagram. Um, like I, I found that really surprising in the last year, how much Instagram has been a valuable tool for keeping in touch with people that I, I don't see very often um, because I can't see anyone very often. <laughs> but it's also possible that the, the the backlash kind of comes back in an even stronger form where people are now so sick of <laughs> being on their computers and being on their phones that um, there could be a sort of time well spent part two where people go like sort of full Luddite and just want to just want to be in the real meat space uh, and not in the digital space. So I, I don't I don't know, but I, I think it's an amazing question. and I'll be curious to see where things land. But um, I mean, I can say for, for myself, like, I was pretty on board with the idea that we, we should be spending less time on screen pre-pandemic. And now I have, like, all those stupid Apple reminders on my phone that are, like, only spend 30 minutes a day on Twitter. And every single day they pop up and it's like, you've reached your time limit on Twitter. And I just ignore yeah. it like a like a 
petulant teenager uh, because <laughs> what am I going to do? Not spend time on Twitter? Come on. <laughs> yeah, you know, that was that was the big, uh, the big mantra at the beginning of the pandemic was like, don't beat yourself up if you're spending a lot of time online. Don't beat yourself up if you're just watching like four hours of Netflix every night. Like, you know, yeah. you need something to keep you occupied. But like the the central problem that they were trying to that, that they were trying to fix was that the design of the apps are they're designed to be sticky right they're designed to keep you in them as long as possible that hasn't changed our right. habits around the apps have changed yeah exactly the 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 whole critique of this movement is that um people are not in control to the extent that they should be and in fact you have uh you know teams of of incredibly smart uh, designers and engineers who are using data to kind of influence your decisions without you even knowing it. Um, and so I think, yeah, the, the wrong, the wrong answer to any of this is to say that an individual should just, you know, use their phone less or, or not beat themselves up when they want to use their phone more, because we're, we're talking about systems here, systems, people, they need to be overthrown, uh, or maybe not. I don't know. (laughs) Ariel, thank you so much for joining us on this very special anniversary episode of Gadget Lab. We hope you'll come back again soon. We'll probably ask you to come back on the show very soon. And in the meantime, we'll be sure to link to all of your stories in the show notes. Always a pleasure to join you guys because um, you are you are some of my favorite people. But it's especially a pleasure to be on with you, Lauren, because um, for many years now, people have confused our voices and as such have... Uh, have attributed really smart things to me that actually you said. And so it's always a pleasure to be here um, with the hope that someone is going to uh, yeah mix us up again and then give me credit for some genius insight you've had. Well, it works both ways. So thank you very much. <laughs> When Arielle first started at Wired, she joined the show a little bit after another co-host had stepped in, David Pierce. David came to Wired in 2015 with some professional podcasting experience under his belt. So he basically walked into our ramshackle little studio in the Wired office, took one look around, and started making a list of things that he wanted to upgrade, get rid of, or change. And if you know David, you know he loves his list-making apps. So we wanted to bring David on to talk about that transition. Personally, I remember it as the time period when the show actually started sounding like a real, fully professional operation, and it's all thanks to him. So here's me and Ariel Pardes talking to David Pierce. David Pierce, look at you. Welcome. Welcome back. Thank you. It's so nice to be back. I have so many memories of that weird little closet. Uh <laughs> All of which make me both like happy and sad at the same time. I also have a lot of memories of that weird little closet because I've been standing in this weird little closet for about a year now. That's true. Compared to the closet you're in now, that closet is enormous. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! So when did you uh, when did you start at Wired? So I started at Wired in January of 2015, and then I was in New York when I started at Wired, and then I moved to San Francisco in April of 2015. And then I think you started allowing me on the podcast, you know, a couple of months after that. It took a little while before you were like, this guy, this guy's not trouble. We can, we can let him into the room, but no, no. pretty soon after that. No, not at all. Not at all. You were, we roped you in immediately, didn't we? I, I don't think there was like a probationary period for, for David. It was like an unofficial, like, let's make sure this guy's not going to prison or anything. And and then I was allowed to be on. Do you remember the first episode that you recorded? No, 
I should. I should have looked this up before I came on. Uh, I'm sure it was momentous and important, and I don't remember. I, I remember that when you came on the show, it was pretty rinky-dink. Uh, we had, like, bad equipment, a bad signing room, and the first thing you did was you you made it, like, not nearly as rinky-dink. I just remember saying, what if we introduced the show every week? Because <laughs> uh, it would just, the beginning of the show would just be talking it'd be like we yeah. just it was like you turned it on in the middle uh and i remember my my big artistic insight was like what if what if you just said welcome to the gadget lab podcast that was and a choice that was that yeah. was a that was a uh that was a an artistic choice i was like you know what <laughs> like we're not we're not going to be like every other technology podcast we're going to have we're not going to have a theme song we're not going to introduce ourselves you're just going to get it in your feed you're going to click on it and it's just going to be people talking at you and you so, were like hey what if we introduced each other and what if we had a theme song and what if we put some structure into the show? Oh, I also, David came up with the idea for the theme song. Well, the, the amount of credit that I get for the theme song is saying to Mike, wouldn't it be cool if we had a theme song? And then it, it, if memory serves, like six minutes later, Mike comes back and is like, oh, I wrote 45 <laughs> possible theme songs. Would you like to use any of these? And they were all amazing. <laughs> and, and I just sort of picked one at random and that became the Gadget Lab podcast theme song. It was great, and we all love it. Nice. It, it's our it's our version of the uh, the 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 Dick Wolf sound in Law and Order. Dum dum. <laughs> it's good stuff. It sounds remarkably like that. <laughs> it has a real vibe to it. That's why we picked it. It was like it was the one that felt sort of the the like coolest and sexiest of all of them. I was very into it. Oh, you're you're warming my heart over here. Well, okay. So, of all the changes that you instituted to our institution, um. What do you think is the the one the most lasting contribution to the podcast? So the thing that I still find myself loving, and I get no credit for this except that I like made us have the meeting that I think led to this, if I remember correctly, was the recommendations thing. Um, that like at the end, everybody's just going to say something that they love, uh, and. I remember as soon as we, that was your idea, I'm pretty sure, in a like, how do we structure this podcast a little more conversation? I'm pretty sure you were the one who was like, let's just end with recommending stuff we like. And that's still, as a listener now, it's it's consistently a thing that I love. And I found like books and TV shows and like weird apps. And Ariel is always like sending people to new places to get their horoscope. And it's just like, it, it, has always been one of my favorite parts of the show. It was fun to do when I was on the show and it's really fun as a listener. I think that's like structurally sort of the the thing that I liked the most. That's quite a legacy. In fact, I would say that some listeners only come to the Gadget Lab podcast for the recommendations. So <laughs> one hell of a legacy. Again, I get no credit for it. I get the the my my job was literally what Mike described. I sat down in a room one time and I was like, what if we just paid attention to this a little bit more for a second. And then Mike had 50 great ideas and now the podcast is awesome. It's a no, perfect sure, setup for me. I'm sure I grumbled a lot. I'm sure I was like, oh God, no, that just sounds like work. Yeah, there was a lot of that, especially <laughs> at the beginning. And we would be we would be sitting there right before we started recording and you'd be like, uh, do we have to do the whole like introduction thing? And I'd be like, yes, Mike, all you have to do is just say, welcome to the Gadget Lab podcast. I'm Mike Calore. And you'd be like, fine. <laughs> <laughs> and then it would be great every time. Uh, so you are at Protocol now. I am, indeed. Or as we refer to it, Techlitico. Techlitico, Polititech, Techlitico. It's all it's all fair game. Do you uh, do you do a podcast there? I do. Uh, it has had many forms in the time that I've been doing it. Um, a strange thing about podcasts is it turns out that 
they're a very different beast than most other formats. Like learning how to make one has been a really interesting process. Learning how to like grow one is a really interesting process. It's all been very strange, but I, I host a podcast. It's called Source Code. It's not nearly as good as the Gadget Lab podcast, but uh, we also haven't done 500 episodes yet, so I have some time to catch up. But, you know, we'll get there. Um, you also do a newsletter, right? I like do. A, yeah. Every day. So, you know, it's the terrible. big thing, you do it every single day? Six days a week. Uh, I had it's somebody so when good. I was, when I first signed up to write a newsletter, there was a, a person in media who pulled me aside and was like, what I always tell people who are signing up to do a daily newsletter is that you have no idea how many days there are. And I didn't really <laughs> realize what that meant. And now I'm, you know, whatever, 15 months into writing a newsletter every single day. And there are just a lot of days. There's just a lot of days. <laughs> See, David, I should tell you that I, I subscribe to both your podcast and your newsletter, and I'm just I'm saying these things and I'm asking you these questions as prompts because I'm here to serve the listener. Uh, well, that's very kind of them. My, th I make it easy for them because my newsletter and my podcast are both called Source Code. You can find them both at protocol.com, uh, and and you can be as cool as Mike Calori and get them every single time they come out. Oh, man. Thank you. You know, uh, one of the things that you wrote about at Wired and that you spent a lot of time talking about is um, your relationship with messaging, particularly like uh, direct messaging and like messaging apps and also email and just communication through the phone, through the desktop. Are you still obsessed with that? Yes, it's it's truly it's the only thing I care about. And I remember <laughs> there was a story I wrote at Wired. Uh, I forget what the the headline was, but it was basically the the thrust of the piece was like, we need to pick one messaging app and we all need to use it. And I don't care what it is. Just tell me which one so I can use it because I'm tired of using 58 messaging apps to talk to all my friends. Uh, and I still, to this day, get emails about that story from people being like, which one was it? And I was like, I don't know. There's like 50 more new ones that I have to use since I wrote that story. Uh, but no, I think messaging is still the most interesting thing in the world. Like how we talk to each other is it bizarre unsolved problem uh and it's been even more this way with like i spend my life on zoom now which is good at some things but like fundamentally kind of a terrible product and they're all terrible and we just like have not made any real progress in this what does it mean to connect virtually thing and i think it is like the most important question in the world that and like maybe solving the middle east yeah, no, it's really it's like that and Snapchat spectacles, which is the thing I remember <laughs> forcing you to talk about like 25 episodes in a row on the podcast. They're the future and the <laughs> past. <laughs> yeah, they're definitely not the past. That I can tell you for sure. They're also not the present, according to everyone who ever emailed me about stories I wrote about spectacles. But they are the future. <laughs> I promise. Did you ever make a recommendation that you would like to take back? Oh, gosh. Um I'm going to say no, uh, if only because nothing has ever really come back to haunt me. And I figure as long as nothing leads to me being sort of viciously attacked on Twitter, it must have been fine. Mm -hmm. um, I think I've recommended a lot of shows over the years that turned out to have like three good episodes and then not be very good. I've definitely recommended books that I had read six to 12 pages of. Uh, <laughs> but, but nothing has really caused me any trouble yet. So I'm going to I'm going to stand by everything. I feel good about wow. it. Wow. Yeah. Good. Uh, I have a question for Mike, which is really the only reason I'm here. Uh, okay. And I want to know, Mike, who was your favorite Gadget Lab podcast co-host? 
my favorite Gadget Lab podcast co-host. Um, if you say me, I'm not going to believe you, and I will ask you again. Oh, geez, that's a hard one. Um, <sighs> I always thought Matt was my favorite. Matt's like annoying in the sense that everything he does is wonderful, and I just wish he'd do more of it. Like every time he writes, I'm like, oh, you're the best writer I know. You should probably write more often. And then he's like, no, I have 85 other things I'm better than you at that I have to go do before I can write again. <laughs> it's just very upsetting. And I feel that way about the podcast too. That's a hard one because everybody is so good and everybody has their strengths. But because she's in the room and I'll get in trouble if I don't say it, I'm going to go with Ariel Pardes. Good answer. If only because like, you know, Lauren is fantastic. You're fantastic. But Ariel is the one who who is uh, uh, always makes me feel like dumber than I am because she's so smart. <laughs> I think that's a compliment, right? Ariel? No, it that's is. A, yeah. That's a terrible answer. I feel like I am <laughs> the only Gadget Lab host ever who has cared not at all about gadgets. Oh, you have you have a very unique relationship with gadgets because you understand the. <laughs> You understand the emotional connection and you understand like, uh, you know, what you get out of it is what you put into it. It's not just about consumerism with you. It's not about like owning something. It's about, you know, how it understands you and mm. how it fits into your life. Mm. That's that's good stuff. I mean, I still remember that from when when Ariel interviewed at Wired sitting in the conference room with Ariel and she's like, is it going to be a problem that I don't really care that much about gadgets and I'm applying for a job on the gear team? And we, we were both kind of like, no, nah, it's probably fine. <laughs> and it turned out great. <laughs> At least Who needs still gadgets? You can't escape the show. We just keep bringing you back on. I know. What's up with that? <laughs> <laughs> Let me out of here. <laughs> um, David, I have one final question for you. Shoot. How's Finn? Finn is wonderful. Finn is eight years old now. Um, Finn is a dog, we got, just in case you, Finn's you, you, a dog. you don't know um, this. And we got a new dog. We got a pandemic dog uh, who is one and a half and is two times Finn's size. He weighs eight pounds. She weighs 20. Uh, and she is just full crazy all the time, uh, which on the one hand has been good for Finn because he's like eight and kind of an old man and cranky. Uh, and she like, you know, keeps him young. Uh, but on the, on the other hand, it's very clear that he would love for us to just like dump her on the side of the road and go home so he can sleep. Uh, so it's been, it's been an interesting transition, uh, but he's, he's good. He's, he's kicking it downstairs on the couch right now. He's, he's happy as can be. He's going to be very sad when we all have to go back to offices again. I don't know what's going to happen. Oh yeah. That's going to be a big, big traumatic day for everybody's pets. Oh my God. There are really, there are like articles about how to transition your pet for you to like, you literally just have to like leave and go stand outside for an hour. So your pet can get used to being away from you. It's very intense. David, I have a final question for you as Shoot. well. Uh, it has been, by my count, six years since you first started railing about us needing one messaging app going forward. I believe that's correct. Uh, let's just settle this once and for all. What's it going to be? The answer is WhatsApp. I hate that the answer is WhatsApp. I wish the answer weren't WhatsApp, but the answer is WhatsApp. We all need to get it. Most people already have WhatsApp is part of the reason I think this is exciting. It's like basically everybody has it on their phone because they've used it at one point. It's simple enough to figure out. It like does all the stuff. It's owned by Facebook, but also the people who run it, I think, hate that it's owned by Facebook, which I find very productive and useful. Uh, so I think the answer is WhatsApp. I would love for it to be some beautiful. I'd love for it to be Signal. I'd love for it to be some like open source, decentralized blockchain thing. But it's forget all that. The answer is WhatsApp. Just WhatsApp it, me it, forever. It doesn't bother you that it's ugly? It's so 
so ugly. But you can me. change the the background of your chat that at least makes it less ugly. So you can get it to like a C plus, and I figure a C plus is is better than I'm going to do anywhere else. Hmm. Okay, it's settled. And when WhatsApp inevitably gets hacked, please don't blame me. That's a recommendation I'll take back. <laughs> You know what the, the the funny thing about it is that like um, even though you talk about uh, how much you love messaging and how much you want us to all settle on one messaging protocol, um, I frequently send you messages and never get a reply back. So I'm going to call you out on that. That sounds like a lie. To me. <laughs> uh, also, Twitter DMs not the best. Right, right. And not by not the best. the best, I mean David is not the best at Twitter DMs. <laughs> uh, but Mike, I love you, and you know that. I love you too. Happy 500th, by the way. Congratulations. Oh That's a God. big accomplishment, man. Oh my God. 500 of these. That's nuts. David, thanks for coming back. Thank you guys. Have me back anytime. Okay. Let's take another quick break and then we'll be back with one more guest in the hot seat. I'm Reid Hoffman. And I'm Aria Finger. If you're interested in learning about how technology and humanity can come together, to make a better future, then Possible is for you. We invite ambitious builders and deep thinkers like Trevor Noah, Kara Swisher, Sam Altman, and so many more. Help us sketch out the brightest version of the future and what it will take to get there. If you want to be part of the future today, then subscribe to Possible wherever you listen to podcasts. So now we've arrived at the final segment of today's special 500th episode spectacular. It's a conversation between the current co-hosts of this show, myself and Lauren Good. I didn't really want to do this, but she talked me into it. So here it is. Now enjoy while I go hide in a closet. Lauren. Mike. Lauren, when did you start at Wired? I started on April 9th, 2018. Wow. You remember the exact date? I remember the exact date. It was a Monday. I had just gone away the weekend before, and it was my birthday just before then. So I'll, I guess I'll always remember that. Oh, well, happy belated birthday. Thank you. The Wired anniversary is more exciting. Did we have you on the show your very first week at Wired? I don't remember. I don't remember. I think that week is just a blur. I remember starting, and I came in with a fresh notebook and the first two pages I had were just filled with questions for you and Ariel um, because we were all sitting in the same sort of gear desk pod and I remember being like all right these are the questions I need to ask my my editors like my first week in the office and get answers to and I kept saying to you uh can we can we like maybe sit at some point and like go over these and you're like oh yeah sure but have you like checked out the cafeteria like there's really good lunch and I'm like yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, cool, sounds great. I'm like, and later on, I was like, do you think, you know, I have these questions here. Do you think maybe we could go through these? And you're like, yeah, so like, what are you thinking about for your first story? And I'm like, oh, all right. Like, it was just like the most chill onboarding <laughs> I've ever had. It was a very Michael Clory onboarding process where I was like, I need to understand the operations of how this is going to work. And you were like, just have some food and chill and write some stuff. See, most people would consider that a bad onboarding experience. Well, I didn't, I didn't qualify it. I just said, I guess I said it was chill. Well, thank you. I, I appreciate you. Uh, I appreciate you recognizing my chill. Yeah, I think it's one of it's one of my favorite qualities about you. 
I do. I do remember being a little bit nervous because, um, you know, we had just said goodbye to uh, David Pierce uh, Mm -hmm. and Ariel was on the team and Ariel and I were doing the show together and we were excited to get you in. But also we didn't know what the energy was going to be like. Um, I should have not felt nervous at all, though, because you were a seasoned podcasting professional by the time you arrived at Wired. Oh, that's very nice of you to say. I mean, I was coming from doing a two year podcast with Kara Swisher where she and I were just kind of like jawing in a room once a week. And um, yes, she often wore her sunglasses while we were taping indoors. <laughs> and so just walking in and seeing your eyes really was just a treat. It was such a treat, you and Ariel. I mean, every podcast has its own vibe. And I was, I was trying to like go with the, with the gadget lab flow while also like inserting some of my own ideas into the room. And it was, I remember being fun right away for sure. I remember being uh, more professional right away. Like oh. <laughs> you, you're always the person who insists that we retake it to get it as perfect as possible. Uh, you're the person who will interrupt me and rewrite my question for me in the moment, which I absolutely appreciate. Uh, these are things that like, Everybody else who I've ever worked with on the show has just, it's just slipped right by and it has, it's, you know, just let me word salad, marble mouth my way through this and it's going to be fine. You're like, no, 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 no. Here's how you do it. (laughs) I would just like to put out the caveat that this is only in my professional relationships do I do this. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure. Mike, we've been to dinner, you know, (laughs) this is only in the Google Doc land. (laughs) Um, so Mike, we've interviewed a few different people now who have been on the Gadget Lab podcast, but you are the OG, like in this room, you're the one who's been at Wired the longest, you've been on the show the longest. So I wanted to throw some questions your way. Do you remember the very first episode of Gadget Lab and what you talked about? Um, so I wasn't on the very, very first episode. Uh, you know, like I've said before, this, this show sort of stopped and started a few times before I joined it with other production teams, like other hosts and other directors. Uh, I do remember pretty early on, I sat in an episode where we were videotaping it because we used to videotape the show, uh, where we were talking about coffee and we were doing a demonstration about coffee and we had Matt Honan on demonstrating how to make coffee with an AeroPress. And just like we, you know, there was a period of like 10 seconds where we just sat there staring at the AeroPress. And I remember thinking to myself, there are a lot of people who are watching this video, but there also are a lot of people who are going to be listening to this as audio. And just like, you know, getting a little, like a little bit of panic, but also just sort of forgetting about it instantly and not worrying about it, which is, you know, the only way to do it really when you're, when you're stuck in that situation. Um, the other thing I remember is we also had uh, a guy on, I think he was a, a fellow or an intern at Wired, and uh, he demonstrated how to use a like a, a sausage as a stylus on a smartphone touchscreen. Oh, that's yeah. not, I'm, oh, sorry, I'm having like a visceral reaction to that. So like, those are the kind of things that we did on episodes way back in the day. You know, it was like, they were like 15 oh, minute episodes. So yeah. we would have somebody come on and demonstrate something for us and talk about it. Yeah. Uh, and, it was a uh, literal know, sausage fest. It was a literal sausage fest. It absolutely was. Although I should say, you know, we had, we had some, some really smart and amazing women from the Wired newsroom on the show, like Christina Bonington and Alexander Chang. And, um, it was, you know, it was a big family. So, um, one of my favorite parts of our show is recommendations. 
mm-hmm. which I would probably say 80% of the time I'm figuring out as we are signing on to Zoom and getting ready to tape. I'm like, oh, what else have I been doing this week other than working? <laughs> oh, right. I should probably recommend that. How did recommendations start? Well, you know, we talked about this earlier in the show with David a little bit, um, but I do remember us coming up with the idea of having a show and then something that was consistent at the end and recommendations felt like the natural way to end it. And I really love it because it lets people bring their personality onto the show, particularly like when we have somebody who's not a host, right? Like somebody from the newsroom who comes in and they talk about the story they wrote that week. And it's like, you know, 20 minutes of them talking about their story. They're super, you know, Uh, up to speed on all of these topics. And then we get to recommendations and they recommend like their favorite yoga mat or like a dog treat that their dog really loves. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. So it sounds like it was a real collaborative effort between you and David to come up with recommendations. You guys are like the Larry and Sergey of recommendations. Oh no. I prefer to say Laurel and Hardy. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Um, Or maybe Jerry and George. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good one. Uh, so you have worked at Wired in a lot of different roles. What has been your favorite job at Wired and why? Honestly, the job I have right now. Okay. I mean, understandably, because you work yes. with me. But like, really, <laughs> why? <laughs> That's exactly why. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, being a writer is a lot of fun. And I was a writer, just a writer for a long time. But being an editor, I think, suits me a little bit better. Um for a couple of reasons. One, like being a writer, it can be kind of a grind. As you know, you show up every day and you have to produce something and that can, you know, some days are, it's easier to do that than, than others for sure. Uh, when you're an editor, there's a lot of other things involved. You know, there's some management, there's some, uh, meetings, there's interacting with people, there's tossing ideas around. So the job I have now, I really like because I get to edit stories. I get to write stories. I get to host a podcast. I get to share my ideas. I get to see some of those ideas land on the website tomorrow. And some of them land on the cover of the magazine in three months. Uh, and some of them end up in your ears every Friday. So I kind of like it. I like the variedness that you get from doing the job I have now. So, you know, in the past I've, I've dealt with like freelance budgets and I've dealt with, uh, you know, staff writer jobs and I've had, uh, audio jobs and video jobs. And I think that this one at Wired is, is the best one. It's also part psychology, what you do. I mean, I tell people that a lot when people aren't familiar with the journalism industry and they say, what, you know, what exactly do editors do? And I think that most people probably have some understanding of what line editing is, like the fact that your editor is going through your copy and like red penning it and telling you to change things or do more work on it. But like really what you're doing is you're just managing a lot of personalities. And those of you who are loyal listeners of the show know that I loved The Last Dance, the Michael Jordan documentary. And I loved how Phil Jackson in particular managed the players on that team and like how he handled like personalities like Dennis Rodman. Right. And like I like to think of you as like our Phil Jackson, Mike. That's great. Thank you. I appreciate that. I would I would say I'm I'm more like Frank Zappa. <laughs> I am not surprised you would say that. <laughs> My ideas go over everybody's head. And, I just uh, thought you were making a musical reference. <laughs> no. <laughs> People look at me and they go, "Oh yeah, that guy." Yeah, I don't know. He's an acquired taste. <laughs> um, okay, two more quick questions for you. What was your favorite Gadget Lab episode of all time? Uh, this one. Okay, good answer. <laughs> Who is your favorite gear writer of all time? You've edited a lot of people. 
Ooh, I really have. Jeez, I don't know. I mean, Lauren Good's pretty good. Uh, you don't just have to say that because I'm on the Zoom. Ariel Pardes is pretty good. She's excellent. David Pierce is pretty good. He's Matt okay. Matt pretty good. Yeah, Matt's great. Mike Isaac. I used to edit Mike Isaac's reviews. Yeah. Those are pretty good. I don't know. Uh, uh, let me say me. Oh, okay. That's true because you were a writer. So and I still am. I still review you products. Still, you do still write about things. So um... I, I published a product review this week. Okay. What was that on? It's about a coffee maker. You should go read it. I'll put it in the show notes. We'll link to it in the show notes. I'm <laughs> off this week. So <laughs> I'll add it to my Insta paper. Um, okay. Here's a bonus question for you. Okay. Who was your favorite gear fellow of all time? Now, fellow, at our fellowship program at Wired, for those of you who don't know, is basically like a six-month residency where we bring in folks who are interested in writing for Wired. Um, we, we pay them. They're trained. Um, and they do all kinds of cool things around the newsroom. And we've typically had a gear, someone on our gear desk helping us with the podcast. So who's your favorite gear fellow? So I know that like this is going to sound cheesy because I just said that this is my favorite episode and that Lauren, you're my favorite writer. But my favorite gear fellow is the guy who's looking at me right now, uh, smiling sheepishly, and that's Boone <laughs> Ashworth, because he is of all of the people that we've had come through. We've had some fantastic fellows over the mm-hmm. years, and all of them have done a really good job with the podcast. But the podcast has been growing and growing and growing over the course of however many years we've been doing it. And when Boone took the helm, it was reaching a point where it was like just tipping over to being actually professional. And he has maintained that professionalism through a year plus of working with us. So uh, I would say the one and only Boone Ashworth, our producer, and uh, the the last Wired Fellow that we've had on the gear desk. (laughs) That's right, because the fellowship program was stalled uh, during the pandemic. That's right. Uh, Boone, we appreciate you. We love the work that you do. Boone is also an excellent writer, and he also has a one-eyed cat named Gandalf, who we love very much. <laughs> you lucked out, man. Yeah. All it took was a global health emergency <laughs> for you to be stuck with us <laughs> in these little boxes on our screens, <laughs> listening to us talk and do retakes and say things 10 times to get it right in your ears every week. Also, shout out to Pia Saris, who was our prior fellow, who's now um, currently working in the Wired newsroom as well. She's a full-timer with us. That's and right. um, Josie Colt, who was before Pia. Mm-hmm. And she is now working as an artist in Vermont, I believe, correct? That's right. Or Maine, yeah. I think. Uh, and okay. geez, who else? Uh, Paul Sarconi and Oh, Bernie yeah, that's Klinkenberg. right. Paul. I, I didn't overlap with Paul when he was a fellow, but yeah. I now have the pleasure of working with Paul. Michael Duran, Gordon Gotzigan. April Glazer. April Glazer is doing great work at NBC News. It's just been a long string of people who are now making magic elsewhere in the world, and we we love them all. Well, Mike, I love working with you, so thank you. And I'm I'm proud to be a part of this 500th episode of Gadget Lab. Thanks, Lauren. We're going to do another 500 together. Uh, Oh, oh boy. Let's hope it's not in a pandemic. (laughs) No, sooner or later, we're going to sit in a room together and we're going to talk into microphones and actually make eye contact. No sunglasses, no masks. It's going (laughs) to happen. Sounds good. I feel like this is our year. All right. Fingers crossed. All right. That is our show for this week. Thanks to everyone who joined us on this special episode. And thank you to everyone for listening all these years. We love you. We really appreciate you. If you have feedback, you can find all of us on Twitter. Just check the show notes. This show is produced by Boone Ashworth. Goodbye, and we will be back to the usual madness next week. 
Want a new podcast to look forward to each week? One that's entertaining, informative, and packed with actionable content? Come on, of course you do. Introducing The Jordan Harbinger Show. The Jordan Harbinger Show, which Apple named one of its best of 2018, is aimed at making you a better informed, more critical thinker so you can get a sense of how the world actually works and come to your own conclusions about what's happening, even inside your own brain. Jordan dives into the minds of fascinating people, from athletes, authors, and scientists, to mobsters, spies, and hostage negotiators. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R, in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com.